oh, um, Ken mentioned Ultimate Frisbee earlier. That's how we know Gene and and gotten to know him and, and now Stephanie and family. Um, we are actually going to do something this week, this coming week, that we've never done before. And, um, and that is play in a tournament. And no, we, we do not look old for our age. We just are old. <laughs> and uh, we are playing in a tournament for 50 and older. And it's called Great Grandmasters. And I think that sounds kind of cool, way too cool for me, but I'm good with it. But I, t- I share that with you for a couple of reasons. I think that's me. Is that me? Yeah. First reason is, I may have to go to the other one. Sorry. All right. Is this good? Okay. No crackling. Uh, The first reason I share it with you is because we need your prayers. We don't want to come back broken, and we don't want to come back injured, but we want to play well, and we want to represent Christ on the field, not just be good athletically or win the tournament or anything like that. That's not really our goal. Our goal is to represent Christ well there. That's been our goal since we've been playing here locally. Um, The other reason I share it with you is because of a particular rule in the game. Now, in the game of Ultimate, um, there's a rule called the spirit of the game rule. And basically, a real short version of the rule is this. You treat your, your players on your team and on the other team as you would want to be treated. You treat the heckling fan from the other team as you would want to be treated. Sound familiar? Sounds kind of like Jesus' golden rule, doesn't it? And, and I love that rule because it, it even plays out practically in the rules of the game and in, in the play of games. So, for example, there are no refs on the field. What happens if, if someone calls a penalty, play stops, and the person who called the penalty and the person they called the penalty on, they work it out. And the way it works is you either agree and then you assess the penalty, or you disagree and you do it over. And, and it's done, and it happens in about 60 seconds. That's resolved. So conflict resolution is built in there. But I love the heart behind the spirit of the game rule, which is we're not trying to get away with it. It's not legal if I get away with it. It's what's best for the game, and that means what's best for the people playing the game and watching the game. So it's a totally different attitude than what you kind of see in maybe football or basketball where they're they're just trying to do as much as they can and not get fouled or not get called for a foul or or, or not getting called for some kind of a penalty. And, and that embodies kind of what I want to talk about today when I talk about really answering the question, what makes a church healthy? What does a healthy church look like? And my bottom line for today is that a healthy church becomes healthy as the people who make up that church become healthy in their character, Christ-like character, faith, hope, and love. And the book of Colossians summarizes that character as faith, hope, and love. Now, you may recognize that from the love chapter in First. Uh, Corinthians 13, where it says faith, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And Paul uses them here, he, he changes the order up a little bit, but he uses them to say, this is a healthy church. So we're starting the series, let me give you a little bit of background, I'm going to assume you don't know much about this, and we'll go from there, um, and then we'll dive in. Colossians is a letter, it's actually a letter, we call it a book of the Bible, because we call them all books of the Bible, but literarily, it's a, it's not, it's a letter and it's a formal letter. So it's not just a personal letter that they captured and put on here. It's a, a formal letter, which means it's intended to be read publicly. 
and it's got teaching in it. And you're, that's what we're going to, that's going to be the content for this series. Um, Paul is the, considered the writer, God is the author, God is the author of all scripture, but he uses people to write scripture. And in the intro, you'll see Paul, he says, Paul uses the common greeting process that was used in those days. He opens with, this is who the letter's from, this is who the letter is to, and he says that right off the bat. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So Timothy is there, Timothy is probably providing some support in the writing of it, but Paul is the writer and God is the author. And then it says who it's to. To God's holy people in Colossae, that's the name of the city, and God's holy people is, an, is shorthand for, or maybe, an ex, actually it's an amplification of the word saints. Um, he says, to God's holy people, or the saints, in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice how he defines saints. He, he defines saints as just people. People who are brothers and sisters in Christ that are faithful to Christ, okay? So this isn't the saints as some would define as um, made official by a church of some kind. This is just Paul calls people in Christ saints, which makes me really uncomfortable because I don't like being called a saint because I know how I behave, but this is a theological truth that's important to understand the difference. Paul calls them saints in position, even though he knows in practice they're not perfectly behaving as saints. I'm like, okay, I I can get behind that. How does someone become a saint? You become a saint when Jesus declares you right. When Jesus justifies you by grace through faith. Okay? And that makes you holy. Because the only way you can be acceptable to the Lord is if you're holy. And God is the only one who can make you holy because in our sin, we disqualified ourselves from being holy. So the only way we can be reconciled to God and made holy again is by the blood of Christ shed for us and we believe by grace through faith that that's not only true, but true for me when I embrace it. And that makes me a holy one of God or a saint. That means when God sees me at the pearly gates, if you will, and I know he doesn't, we don't really, it doesn't really work like that. But when we go face to face with God on judgment day, he sees our sainthood. Okay? Even though in practice, we didn't live that perfectly. Because this isn't what saves us. This is what saves us. The reason we choose to begin to be changed into saint-like behavior, I will call that Christ-like behavior, is because he's made it possible for us by making us holy, okay? So that's why he calls, in a lot of his letters, he, calls, he writes to the saints of Philippi or the saints of Colossae or God's people. He calls himself an apostle because he, he's sent by Jesus to preach, to proclaim the good news. An apostle means one who's been sent, a messenger, if you will with a message. And then to God's holy people, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. And the order there is not accidental. To receive the peace of God, which isn't just absence of conflict, that's, that's a wholeness that goes to the core of who you are. That even in the midst of the storms of life, you can still have this peace. Okay, the Jews would have used the word shalom. Okay? But to get that kind of peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding, that guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, to get that, you need to have the grace of God in your life. And that's why he says grace and peace. Sometimes he'll add the word mercy in there too. Now, Colossae is a city in modern day Turkey. All right? But in the days that this was written, which would have been the first century, around mid first century AD, um, it was called Galatia. The region was called Galatia or Asia Minor. 
okay? Um, the book of Galatians is written to churches in this region. This particular city is about 80 miles east of Ephesus, which is on the coast um, there on what is today Western Turkey. And Ephesus was a major hub, a major city, probably the fourth most important city in the Roman Empire in those days. So 80 miles inland, you had this small city called Colossae, and um, near it, you had Hierapolis, which was famous for the hot springs we've talked about, uh, Laodicea, which we're known about, we talked about with the lukewarm water, and we talked about how, how wealthy that nation that not nation, that city was because of the banking industry and the, the eye salve industry and the black wool. And so they were kind of overshadowing this town. But the way this town came to find the gospel isn't because Paul took it to them directly, which is how some of those cities in that region did. Paul, on his third missionary journey, so first missionary journey, he travels with Barnabas. Second missionary journey, he travels with Timothy and Silas third missionary journey, he goes to the city of Ephesus and he sets up a base of operations there and he stays there for two years. Instead of going city to city and just continuing to travel and he'll be here for a week, here for three weeks, here for six weeks, but keeping traveling through, he decides to change his strategy and he says, I'm going to train up people and send them out to do the city to city thing but to spend more time there, and I'm going to continue to train them here from Ephesus. And so that's what he was doing. Colossae was one of those cities that benefited from the third missionary journey. And probably one of the guys that was part of that is a guy named Epaphras, uh, which is mentioned here in these verses. And Epaphras happened to be with Paul when he's writing this letter. Now, we th Paul's in prison when he writes this letter. It's why it's called one of the prison epistles. There's four of them, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. And Philemon is a letter to an individual who was also a member of the Colossian church. So he might have even been, he was a host uh, of one of the house churches there. So we have two characters already from the church of Colossae that are involved. We have Philemon, which uh, he's probably mentioned late, if at all, but he's mentioned in a few pages, you can almost flip over right before Hebrews and you can find the one chapter letter written to him. But also here we have Epaphras, who was probably their pastor, but he was with Paul. Now, why was he with Paul? And Paul's probably in prison, we think, in Rome. We're not positive on that. So he would have traveled to Rome, which would have been a big deal, a long journey. So he had a good reason for wanting to do this. And here's the reason. This good church was under attack, spiritual attack, from people who were teaching things that were not true, teaching false doctrines. And without getting into the weeds of all that, this is kind of the way I would, I would summarize it. They were basically teaching that to really know God, to really be spiritual, you had to know certain things and you had to do certain things or not do certain things, okay? And, and then you have to remember in contrast to the gospel that Jesus is teaching and Paul is teaching and Peter and the apostles are teaching, which is you are saved by grace through faith. It's not of your own lest you boast. Okay? And it's by grace through faith. That's it. That's the only way you come to Christ. You don't do anything to earn salvation. Okay? That doesn't mean there isn't effort required, but no earning. So what he would say is that these folks are adding things to the gospel. And you remember how Revelation ended. If you add to this, then you get the plagues. And it's like, you don't want the plagues of the apocalypse. All right? And, and he, they were adding things like you had to have this super knowledge. Okay? And I can teach you this super knowledge for a little coin, 
right? I can show you how to read the scripture in such a way that there's new meaning and insight and you'll become more spiritual than the rest of these humble Colossian people. They, they just trust, they don't get it. Let me teach you this knowledge. And this is where the Gnostics come from, which is, comes from the Greek word gnosis and, and, and special knowledge is what that means. That's one, one thing they were teaching. Another thing they were teaching is, and this is kind of from the Jewish um, the, the Jewish uh, legalisms that, that were or common in the day, and that is asceticism, which is a, a word that basically means you would deny yourself certain things to look and be more spiritual, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't value in that. Obviously, there's, there's physical value and spiritual value in fasting, for example, so that wouldn't be something we would have a problem with, but they were taking it and making it more like a legalistic activity and that by doing that you are leveraging yourself up a spiritual ladder to God sounds kind of like Tower of Babel I guess it's the ladder of Babel <laughs> but uh, my, my point here is that they were teaching false doctrines in the church I imagine that some of these people were probably considered themselves to be a part of the Colossian church so there was some of this coming from the inside of the church and then some would have been people from Hey, I've met this guy. He's got this talk he's given at his house. You want to come up from the outside. And that's, that's the two ways the church is typically attacked, from the inside and from the outside. So it's a big deal. It's a big enough deal that Epaphras says, I'm going to go talk to Paul. He'll know what to do. And so he hikes to see Paul in prison. And Paul is in, this is his first time in prison. And the way the prison that he was in the first time worked was he was considered under house arrest. And what that meant was he, was he was above ground, not in a dungeon. He was probably in some kind of dwelling house of some kind, but he would have been 24-7 chained to a Roman soldier. Okay? And every, whatever, so many hours, that soldier would swap out for another one and they would be chained to him. But he had some freedoms. He could talk to people. He could preach and teach from his house. And, and the Roman soldier just stood there shackled to him because that's what he was paid to do. And, and Paul would preach and teach, and he did this for years. So this was a long time coming, happening. And you can read about that in the book of Acts as he makes his journey to Rome. Epaphras comes to him and he says, this is what's happening in our church. And Paul's like, okay, we got to do something about this. And so Paul's answer, of course, he can't go, is to write this letter. So that's the reason we have the letter to the Colossians. And he writes it in such a way that it can be used in other churches. That's why it's a formal letter called an epistle versus only written to a certain people, which would be more like a private letter. So that's kind of the background. There'll be more to come, but um, just to kind of get us started. And, and so Paul, which he typically does when he's writing a letter to a church of people. Oh, one other thing. Um, we got to redefine uh, church. What does church mean according to the first century? What was that like? So it was 300 years before there was a church building. Okay. No church buildings for 300 years. And the reason was because to be a Christian was to be a persecuted person. And so the church was essentially underground, metaphorically underground, in the sense that you, they were meeting in small groups in homes. And so when I, would, when I refer to the church of Colossae, I'm actually referring to a network of house churches that would have met regularly in homes. Now, 
their culture was very different than ours. Their homes were smaller, and they could put a lot more people in that smaller home than we would be willing to put in our bigger homes. It was just the culture. They weren't afraid to be close together. They didn't understand what deodorant was, and they just they got used to not smelling that whatever they would smell, and they would just cram into a, a small room. And, and the house church would basically be what Paul would call an oikos, which is a Greek word for not yogurt, but actually for a household. Okay, same word though, oikos. And they would gather in these homes on week on the week, uh, like on the. Uh, I guess they would worship on Sunday, the day that the that the Lord rose. So on Sundays they would gather to worship the Lord, and then they would have a meal, and the Lord's Supper would be a part of that meal. And they would gather for teaching and singing and pray, praying and, and ministering to one another, and they would do this, you know, the whole day would be given over to this. And so your, your oikos or your household would be your church. So it would kind of like, it would, Thanksgiving's not a great example, but it's kind of like that in that you, when Thanksgiving, traditionally, a lot of families will have your, you have your nuclear family, your immediate family there, you have your extended family, Okay, if you have grown kids, they're coming back with their kids. You might invite parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins that you're close to or that are geographically close to you because it would have been, you know, most people are traveling on foot. So it would have been people geographically close to you that you do life with or know because of family. And then it would also have included if you have a business, which a lot of people ran businesses out of their homes, they would have included the slaves, if they had slaves or employees that were part of that, in some cases both, and the family members of those slaves and um, employees, and they would be a part if they chose to be. And then you might add some just really good friends that were, or neighbors, and, and so you'd have this collection of 20 to 70 people that would gather every Sunday to eat and worship. And that was called one of the network of house churches called the Colossian Church. And the Colossian churches would have been pretty unified. Each Colossian church would have had at least one elder, and they would have met at times together to talk about what challenges are in the city and how can we minister to one another, how can we work together to make sure that people who are part of the church can get their needs met. And so that was was kind of the culture too. So it's very different than what we have today because we have... uh, Positive legal status is the church. It's not illegal to be a Christian again yet. Um, it's, um, it's pretty convenient. And, you know, we have church buildings all over the place. Not so in the first three centuries. Okay. Now, with that said, Paul would open his letters by thanking and praising the people of that church if they were praiseworthy. And that's what he does here really briefly. But he kind of gives this thanksgiving and prayer and these first, and we're just going to do the first eight verses. We're in verse three. What, and Paul writes, we... Paul, I presume Timothy and those who were with him, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, okay? And Paul was very faithful at praying for the Christians and all the churches and all the different places where it was blowing up um, in, the King, in the Roman Empire. And he tells us in verse four why he's thankful for them. And this is big, okay? Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of, your, and of the love you have for all God's people and the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up, in, stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel and that, is come, that has come to you. Paul can write some long sentences, let me tell you. Okay, so um, this is where I want to camp for the, most of the time that we have left, okay? 
Paul has heard. That means he hasn't been to Colossae. He didn't start that church, like I said, but he has heard of the reputation that they have through Epaphras, through Epaphras and others, Philemon and then the other people, okay? And he has heard good things. This is a healthy church, but it doesn't mean they're not a vulnerable church, vulnerable to false teaching, okay? Um, and and the, the character is what we're really going, going for here. Okay, the character of Christ or Christ-likeness. Okay, when we talk about in, in the church, when we talk about being a fruitful follower, fruitful is metaphorical for being someone who is bearing the spiritual fruit of Jesus in their lives. Okay, fruit of spirit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, uh, self-control. I got them out of order, so I missed one, but. You get the idea. It's those characteristics that come out when we don't feel like giving out those characteristics. They come through supernaturally because the Holy Spirit lives in his people. And it, and it enables me to be patient in Charleston traffic when I don't feel like being patient. You know what I'm saying? So that's the, that's the fruit of the Spirit and that's the power he's talking about. He's saying that's the kind of character that the Colossian church is made up of is people with that kind of character. So when I was talking about spirit of the game rule that we want to treat others like we want to be treated, that's in essence love your neighbor as you love, as you love yourself. That's the command of Christ, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. See it? Okay, that's the, the two-sided coin of the command of Jesus. Love God, love people. In our lingo here, we talk about being a disciple. What does it look like to be a faithful disciple of Jesus? We say it's the, inner, it's the bullseye of fruitfulness that you find when someone is growing in Christ-like character and Christ-like competencies. I want to focus on character, character today because I believe that this passage summarizes Jesus' character in the three words of faith, love, Faith, love, and hope. Faith, hope, and love. So that's where I want to drill down on here. So um, because we've heard, so Paul's heard, that's their reputation. He's praising them. He's thanking God for them. And he's saying, I want to praise you for three things. And this is our bottom line for today, is that a healthy church is made up of people who are growing in faith in Christ Jesus, love for God's people, and a ho- that springs from a hope that the best is yet to come. Okay, and that's the future history we've talked about when we went through the book of Revelation the last 35 weeks, okay? So I shouldn't have to spend too much time there today. But uh, let's look at the first two. So the faith. Now, everybody has faith, okay? Everybody you've ever met has faith in something or someone, okay? Even the atheist cannot prove there is no God. Therefore, I'm left to conclude, they have faith that there is no God, that's their faith, okay? Um, a suicide bomber that believes that if I blow myself up, Allah will be so pleased with me that he'll take me to paradise has faith that there's an Allah that's gonna do that. So faith in and of itself is not enough if you want to be Christ-like. It, is, it matters who you believe in, okay? There's a scene at the end of the movie, The Polar Express, you know, the Tom Hanks, he's the conductor of the railroad and he's talking to the little boy about believing in Santa and all of that. And when he, when he does, he says something sort of like this at the end. He says, it doesn't matter where, which way the train's going. It, what matters is that you get on, okay? And there's a good point to that and there's a bad point to that. The good point is, yes, you can't, if you don't exercise faith, you're never gonna arrive anywhere. Good, I mean, if you're not, but it matters which train you get on. It really matters because all but one train are gonna take you somewhere you don't wanna go. 
The train that takes you where you want to go is the train that is hitched behind the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if Jesus says that, then you can't follow Jesus and somebody else when he said that. Then otherwise, you've got a schizophrenic faith. You're not, you're not um, being consistent. All right? and, and he makes that claim all the way through the New Testament. It's over and over and over. All right, so the faith is, and it says right here, because I, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Christ meaning prophet, priest, or king, Messiah. Jesus meaning the Lord saves. Okay, so we have the king who is the Lord who saves his people from sin and death, shame and guilt, hell itself. That's why Jesus matters. Okay, so they had faith in him, which gives them the ability to do something we cannot do apart from Christ, not with purity, and that is to love people as God loves people. If you want to love people like God wants love, to love, you have to have God in your heart. And how do you get God in your heart? You get the Spirit of God to move in and pitch his tent in your heart so that he empowers you to do what you and your flesh cannot or will not do. Because we are selfish, but Jesus' Spirit gives us the power to, to love not only with right actions, but with right motives. I mean, I can fake some things for a while, right? I mean, every Sunday people come and they're kind of faking it, right? How you doing? Great. We're not really answering the question, right? Why? Because I don't really want to get into it. It's easier to wear the mask, right? Well, to love somebody, you can fake that too, okay? But to love someone with a pure motive consistently, that requires God to do a work in and through us, okay? And they're doing that, but they're, look at, notice who he says, I'm, he praising them for loving the people of God. This is interesting, because I don't think we always think about this. I, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. All God's people. Who are God's people? So God's people would be the people. There's kind of two groups of people, okay? And, and I would say this is true, Old Testament, New Testament. I don't think it matters. At the end of the day, one Savior, God shows us who we need to trust. But it's those who have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And it's those who will trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know who those are, right? I can, you know, I can see some signs of somebody who's leaning in maybe, and, but I don't know because God can save anybody. And even my enemies could come to know Christ under the right circumstances if they are willing to submit and, and surrender. So it's basically love people, right? But he's making a point here. He's saying that a healthy church family not only has Christ Jesus as their object of faith, their person of faith, but they also have a healthy, genuine, supernatural love for the people in the body, okay, in the church. Not just all churches, but let's get real, practical. The people in your local church, those are, that's where you and I practice this kind of love. One of the reasons we emphasize going to groups during the week, Bible studies, mission groups, home groups, core groups, whatever kind of group you're choosing to go to, the reason we, one of the main reasons is that that is where we practice the, the one another passages in the Bible where it says, you know, pray for one another, confess your sins to one another, uh, give to one another, uh, encourage one another, serve one another. All of these, there's like 40 of them. Where do you, you don't do that on a Sunday morning when we're sitting here in rows. It's hard to do that when you're just sitting listening to some guy talk. But when you get into someone's home 
and you're having conversations uh, on the sofa or in the, over the kitchen table, you can begin to hear people's stories and you can get to know them and you can hear their needs and their heartaches and their passions and you can start to connect with them in a real meaningful way, life-changing way. Then when there's a need and you've been praying for them, now you can care for that need, that person. And, and it gives you opportunities to share your life with them. And this is why we encourage people to prayer, prayer care, share. As a lighthouse in your neighborhood, this is good for reaching your neighbors, but it's also good for strengthening the, the, the local body relationships that we have in our local churches. So wherever you go to church, are you loving each other like that? Because it stood out to Paul. I'll give you an example of how our church has done a good job on this. It's a small example, but yesterday, I'm working on my deck, ripping up rotten boards and putting down new boards, and I need, I've already been to the hardware store. I don't want to go back to the hardware store, and I need two boards. I need a two-by-six about this long, and I need a two-by-eight about that long. And so I text some guys that, that I know pretty well, I text a good bit with, that are in the church. And I say, hey, anybody have any scrap wood? And um, immediately things start to happen. It's, it's kind of crazy. One guy starts to go dumpster diving because there's, there's building houses in his neighborhood. He's like, I'll go dumpster dive. I'll let you know what I find. I'm like, oh my, that could be, that could be ugly. And then uh, another one said, I'm going to check. I've got a pile in the back. Let me go see what I've got. And at the end of the day, I got two scraps of wood from two different people because they were willing to go to a lot of trouble to just give me a piece of wood. Now, it would have been simple to drive to the store and buy the wood, Okay. And it wasn't going to be that expensive. But I got to tell you, I wanted to text these guys. I like these guys. I want to do life with these guys. And this was like, I know this might be a hassle, but they know they don't have to do this. And so I texted them and I got the pieces of wood. And uh, one guy even said, okay, I've got the plague, jokingly, but he's got, he's got the, he's sick. So he's like, I will set up sawhorses in the yard, put the board out with a saw, plugged in, ready to go. And you just cut off what you need. I mean, he went to all that trouble. I drove up, I cut off the piece I need, and I left. It was so, it was, he went the extra mile. But that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about, you know, dying for each other, though that would be appropriate at, at, some, at some point in the future. It could be. Because this is the same love. It's just a magnitude of love. How much or how little. Okay? Are we... Not only is our faith in Christ Jesus, but when our faith is in Christ Jesus, it will move us to love one another in that way. And that's what I, I want. I, I want to be a church where we love each other like that. And I feel like we do a pretty good job of that. But we're still, we've still got ways to go. It doesn't matter. And this is, we got, we've got work to do here. Grace Christian Fellowship has work to do here. They don't have to look like you. They don't have to sound like you, talk like you, okay? We love and embrace Yankees. Okay, we get, we got lots of cool Midwesterners here too. Okay, it doesn't matter what they smell like. It doesn't matter where they're from. We just love one another. And if somebody is coming here and they come more than once, then you need to assume that they are uh, a future in this category person, and you need to begin to love them already. Okay, what amazes me week after week isn't that people come and check us out. What amazes me is that they come back. And I just love that because I know they don't come back for this. I know they come back for the people loving on them in the context of this. And they see the connection. And that is a powerful connection. All right, so uh, faith in Christ Jesus, that's essential, central to becoming a person growing in Christ-like character and competency who loves God's people with a Christ-centered love, 
a selfless love, an, uh, an unconditional love, a sacrificial love, an extravagant love. And uh, all of that springs from a hope that believes the best is yet to come. And the reason that matters is it gives us context. And it says that um, in the midst of this crazy world and all that's going on right now, why would I spend any time doing any of that when I've just got to take care of me and take care of my family? And it gives you context to say, because when you believe that the best is yet to come, you have hope that God is going to make all of this so much better than it is, it allows you to get through this with an with a open-handedness that you wouldn't have otherwise. To go through life clenched, trying to hang on to what I have instead of open and surrendered to what he can take out of my hands and what he can put into my hands, there's a freedom here that you just, it's hard to explain. So that's, that's why I would say on that hope piece. Now, let me do one more thing on the, on the love thing. 1 Corinthians 13. I, I just want to read a few of these verses. This is another way that challenges me to love God and to love people. Is when I think, what is love? Okay? Because we use the word, the, the Greeks, who, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. They had four or more words for love. And every word meant something different. Like, Eros love is more of a romantic love, whereas Phila love is like a brotherly love, okay? And then you had other kinds of love, like agape, which is the unconditional surrender kind of love. We just say love. I love pizza and I love my wife, right? Those two words better not mean the same thing, right? Or you're not going to have a happy wife if you say that in front of her, right? We have to think contextually. How does God define love? And this is the word agape, and this is the one. I want to read this to you. I'm going to start in chapter 13, verse 4. And, and what I want you to do, when I say love, in your mind, I want you to put your name. I want you to say your name. Okay? This will challenge you and me. All right. Remember, substitute your, your first name for love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Love does not dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but love rejoices with the truth. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Love never fails. And then it ends with verse 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. God is love, the Bible says. 1 John 4. God isn't just loving. God is love. Okay? And so when he inhabits his people, it makes sense that we should radiate that same love, the love of God as if we were the sun and our actions, words, and thoughts are the sunbeams. It ought to be like that. That's why I like that analogy of saying we, our home is a lighthouse on our street because it's full of people who radiate the light and love and life of Jesus Christ through their actions, words, and thoughts because God lives in them. The theme of this whole book I'm talking, I'm back to Colossians. The theme of the whole letter, the book of Colossians, is that Christ is supreme, that he is preeminent, that he is above all things. And the reason we say that is because 
He is like what we describe to perfection. And he created a world where this could be the norm. And you can say, well, have you looked out the window lately, Darren? Because it doesn't look like that. And it doesn't look that way because God made it that way. It looks that way because when God made it supreme and preeminent, okay, we messed it up. He gave us the freedom to mess it up. I mean, we do this with our kids, right? We move into a new house. We give them each their own room. They put all their toys in there. It's all nice and neat and everything looks great. Quick, take a picture because it's not going to be like that in a few minutes. And what do they do? And next thing you know, the years pass and um, there's, there's dents in the wall and whole, uh, not, you know, grooves in the, in the moldings and it's dirty. And, you know, because we take what God has given us and we don't always do what he wants us to do with it. We don't always handle it well. God's grace is amazing and he gives us what we need to continue to press through that. And one day he's going to restore all things back under his headship. And we won't have these temptations anymore to, to reject and to, to pull away. We'll have the freedom, but we won't want to. I love that. Um, I heard a story, I was reminded of a story today um, in, uh, in the weekly reading, the daily readings that, that we do of, of, of a violin string that um, if you have a violin string and you just lay it on the table, that string is free but it's not free to sing. It's not free to, to sound. You have to bind it into place for it to be free to sing. Well, I don't know about you, but I want to be bound like that to Jesus Christ. I don't care if you call me a slave to Jesus Christ. I can't think of a better place to be because he sets me free to sing and be the person he wants me and created me to be. And that's my hope for you and me. So let me read out the rest of this because it kind of puts a bow on things. Uh, verse uh, seven, he tells where, where, they got the, uh, where they got the gospel. You learned it, that is the gospel, the true message of faith, which he just mentioned. You learned it from Epaphras, their pastor, or probably the, just the person that started it. Our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. And that's what he calls you and I to do too. I don't think Epaphras started, set out to start a church. I think he just kept telling people about Jesus. And, and it was so infectious because he was modeling what he was saying they could have too. And people were drawn to him. Remember, it was illegal to be a Christian when the church was growing like this. It was illegal. In fact, Christians were called atheists. And you're like, why were they called atheists? They were called atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. They didn't believe that Caesar was God. They wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. They said Jesus is Lord. We can't say Caesar is Lord. And so that some of them would get arrested. Some of them would get martyred. Some of them would get thrown to the lions. And some of them would have to hide or, or run and meet in secret but they continued to meet. That tells you something about the faith. Now, you may be looking around and going, well, I've never seen a faith like that before. And you may not have yet in America. It exists, but we, we have a different culture and we have a different mindset here. And so it's, it's not as vibrant as, in a lot of places as it could be, but it can be. Because Christ is supreme and he is revealing who he is 
so that we might see the vision of what could and should be and step into that as his followers and become that ideal that Jesus Christ is. That we would have the love, the faith, hope, and love of Jesus exemplified in our characters and to be a church that is full of people that are aiming to be that. Wow. That would not only be a supreme Christ to follow, but that'd be a supreme church to be a part of. I would love to be that. Let's pray. Lord God, as we, as we begin to think towards the, um, the cross, we remember that Christ took our place. This supreme Jesus Christ, a king who died for his subjects so that they, he, they could live for him. We worship you. We praise you. We're humbled that you would even speak to us because we're the reason Jesus had to go to the cross in the first place. Our sin put your son on the cross because the only way to redeem us, to buy us back, was to send a substitute to take the punishment we deserve. Jesus did that. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for going to the cross on my behalf. Lord, as we leave this place today, as we think about what you've said to us today, may we go one step further. May we have the courage to not just discern what is it God's saying to me today, but to do something about it. To not be content to just go, oh, that was a good thought. But to actually be changed. To change the way that we think and speak and talk and, and act to change our mindsets so that we reflect the character of Christ. Ah, that would be supreme. Move in us in such a way that we do that as individuals and as a church family and that we would be so contagious that people would just be drawn to Christ through us. And we ask it in Christ's name, amen.